Executive Director of the Massachusetts Coast Coast, welcoming you to the No Flood Newscast, the official podcast of the Massachusetts Coast Coalition, with host, myself, Joe Rossi, and co-host and vice chair of the Massachusetts Coast Coalition, Tim Williams. And uh, thanks for being uh, the co-host on another No Flood newscast. Yeah, excited for today. Yeah, no, I am too. And we have a really awesome guest here, um, somebody who knows flood insurance and especially the National Flood Insurance Program uh, probably better than anyone that uh, I could ever imagine having on uh, the podcast. Uh, And that would be Dr. Karen Linkowski, the Executive Director of the Wharton Risk Center, uh, and Carolyn's here with us today. Uh, Carolyn, how are you? Good. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, no, thank you for uh, being part of this. I mean, I think it's really in, it's really going to be interesting today to hear from somebody that has the perspective that you do because you not you don't just talk about flood insurance and the National Flood Insurance Program. You study it and research it and research things such as uh, some research you've done about participation and um, the reasons why people may or may not purchase uh, both flood and and, and other uh, hazard insurances. So uh, before we get into flood specifically or some of that particular research, talk to us a little bit about some recent work and research that you've done. Yeah, sure. Thanks for having me on. As you said, I think about flood insurance a lot, um, but it's in the context of thinking about how we financially recover from disaster events. But of course, our financial recovery is also tied, you know, very closely to what we do ahead of of an event to prepare and how we invest in risk reduction. Um, So the kind of whole spectrum of disaster risk management. What motivates my interest, I should say, in thinking about why people purchase flood insurance, how to expand the number of people with flood insurance comes from work that we've been sort of engaged in over a number of years, which has to do with why it's important that people have disaster insurance in the first place. And so I think maybe it's useful to start there. And we've done some work looking at the federal disaster aid programs in the US. And after a big disaster event occurs, if you don't have insurance, you're really stuck. And that kind of motivates a lot of our work, right? So if you happen to be really affluent and you have a lot of savings, that's fine. You don't, you know, you could fund your rebuilding anyway. But for most people, that's not the case, right? We know that around half of homeowners don't have $400 in liquid savings for an emergency. So you certainly don't have enough to rebuild from a big disaster event. I have a colleague affiliated with the center who's done some research on the first line of defense for victims after a disaster, which is actually a loan. And they found that over half of people who apply for disaster loans are actually rejected because they're not credit worthy. So you don't have savings, you don't have a loan. And then disaster aid from the federal government doesn't always come. And when it does, it's a lot more limited than people think. So it's actually really important for people's recovery and well-being after a disaster event to have insurance coverage. So most, most people kind of get into um, thinking that bailout from federal aid is going to be a big number. Um, and we know it's 
at most what thirty three thousand, and the average is four to five thousand on the payout. I mean, do you see that a lot when you're in these disaster areas across the country? Yeah, that's exactly like RV right. and whatnot. Yeah, exactly. I think there's this common misperception that there's going to be these federal grants that make homeowners whole, and that's especially the case when you see the huge numbers associated with large, um, you know, congressional supplemental legislation after the Harveys, the Sandys, the Katrinas, which can be in the tens of billions of dollars. Um, but the sort of immediate grants that families get after disaster through FEMA, exactly like you said, are capped at a little over $30,000 and the average is only a few thousand. So like you mentioned, Harvey, I think the average FEMA grant there was a little more than 4,000, but the average flood insurance payout was closer to 115,000. So you can see that 4,000 is really not going to get you to rebuild a devastating home, but 115 gets you closer. Um, I should say, you know, there are these huge sums that are appropriated after disasters. um, And a lot of that money goes into now actually the Department of Housing and Urban Development through grants that are made to state and local governments. And there's a lot of flexibility in how those dollars are used. And sometimes they will go to homeowners, but they tend to be for very long-term recovery or flood mitigation and homeowners won't actually see that money for often years after disaster events. So while there may be federal aid to help with elevating your home or something way down the line, it's not in the sort of months and weeks after disaster when you really need access to funding. You know, we do, in, in, on that point, you know, you, you, we do a lot of, uh, here at the coalition, we've had a talk that we do for the last year and a half or so about looking at insurance, flood insurance as that bank account for the community, right? The resilience bank account, as we've called it. That requires, that requires people in the community to actually purchase the flood insurance. And I think the, and I think you've touched on this in past research you've done is, you know, what is in, in your mind, maybe that, that golden nugget when it comes to getting somebody motivated enough to actually purchase the, whether it's be, be flood or earthquake or that, that major disaster insurance. Have you, have you seen like maybe a, a methodology to get that motivation or, or something like that? Well, I think the challenge is that we've found that there's a number of different reasons that people might not purchase disaster insurance. And because there's several contributing factors, it's hard to really come up with sort of a silver bullet solution here. Um, But one of them, so let's just go through sort of the big ones, right? Um, First is people not even knowing they're at risk. So that gets to how we talk about risk and how how we communicate it. Um, The second would be sort of there's a lot of behavioral economics work that people, even if they're sort of told that they're at risk, don't do a particularly good job of evaluating those risks and what they should do about it. So that's another challenge. A really big, and then the third one around sort of understanding and stuff is understanding insurance. So insurance, first of all, is a weird product. It's unlike almost anything else people purchase. And we found that lots of people don't understand the mechanism, the role it plays in their life. And that's insurance broadly. And then when you get to flood insurance, there's all these other things, right? Like it's not in your homeowners, you have to get a separate policy. It's sometimes really confusing. Agents might not know about it, right? So there's all these issues too. And then finally, I think a really big one is just price. And disaster insurance, as you know, is expensive and it's hard to make it inexpensive. And then, you know, a public program tries a lot to do about that. And we can talk about sort of the trade-offs there in affordability, but it's still an expense. And for a lot of people, it's either out of reach financially, they just don't have the funds, or if they do have the funds, they don't think it's worth it, right? And then that links back to those earlier things. Why don't they think it's worth it? What, what's the coverage? What do they need? Do they understand that? So there's all these things sort of working together that make it challenging. 
Yeah, let's let's go down that road of price. You, you mentioned that, right, the cost of flood insurance. And for our listeners, I think that's one of the things that uh, is the biggest pain point, right, when we talk about what, what when, when somebody approaches, you know, either the coalition for some advice or Tim and I for, for, for insurance, flood insurance, 90% of the time the response is, you know, whatever the lender is requiring, highest deductible, just give me whatever the lender is requiring, which tells us over the years, right? That's not a new, that's not a new, new comment we get, but you know, over the years, what that tells us is that the cost is, it's either not important to them or the cost is such that they just want whatever the lender is requiring at the highest deductible possible. And there's no real thought put into understanding that risk. What would you say? And, and I think we can dovetail into private flood insurance a little bit, because what we've found over the years is the NFIP has all these requirements for either lowering a premium or getting the right rate where private flood is now finding a home in that space to kind of ease those costs a little bit. So what would you say um, are things that are happening in the realm of affordability around flood insurance? Yeah, it's a really important question. And I think there's kind of two pieces. One is the public program and what can go on with the NFIP. And then, as you said, what can be done in the private sector space to help here, right? Um, so starting with the NFIP, there's now been many stakeholders over many years who've called attention to the fact that the discounts in pricing that are currently in the flood insurance program are not means tested and they're not targeted at the people who most need help, right? And so the sort of policy solution that's been proposed from folks on both sides of the political aisle um, and, and a range of stakeholders is that you actually set up a means tested program to help low income families who couldn't otherwise afford this financial protection be able to afford it. That of course hasn't materialized at a federal level. Um, and in response, there are a few state and local governments actually that have started to do their own types of affordability programs. When um, we could talk about those if you want. Um, but some, in terms of sort of the private sector, I mean, I think one of the challenges with the NFIP is that it's a little bit of a one size fits all solution. And flood risk, we know, can vary dramatically. And we often don't talk about how different the risk can be, right? If you have a home on the Gulf Coast at risk of storm surge from a hurricane, that is really different than if you are in a suburban area far from the coast, far from a river, but in a depression, and we're seeing intensifying storm events so that when it rains, you get an inch of water in your basement. And that's different still from being behind a levee that hasn't been upgraded, that could fail, right? There's all these different types of flood risk, and the type of coverage you need for those can be really different. Um, and so you don't need to be buying a policy to rebuild your entire home from storm surge if the only thing you're experiencing is an inch of water in your basement, right? So being able to better tailor your product to your need, I think, is also a solution where the private sector could really help. That's really interesting. Um, it's interesting that the product, because I think there's been a lot of focus, especially on risk rating 2.0. I know it's a place where Tim has definitely had, had, had a lot of thoughts on risk rating 2.0. And the movement that the NFIP is trying to make, not only in its rates, but its policy forms as well, right, to offer more products. So where do you see that fitting into the bigger picture? I know there's not a lot of information out there right now about risk rating 2.0, but its concept is to move closer to a private flood model where they're actually looking at those varying types of risk. Yeah, so personally, from the information that's out there, I think that 
risk rating 2.0, and let's talk about what that is in one second, coupled with an affordability program would be a really important step forward for the program. And I think you need both of those things. So risk rating 2.0 is about modernizing premium setting in the flood insurance program, which really, right, the way the NFIP is setting rates <clears throat> goes back decades. And it's far behind the sort of tools and data and approaches that the private insurance sector is now using to deal with catastrophic risks. And so in that sense, it's really time for the program to modernize and update and make use of these tools as well. So I think that's one which is good. My understanding of how risk rating 2.0 is being designed suggests two other potential benefits. One is that you'll better understand how your rate relates to risk. So you could see better I have a high rate because, because I'm at risk of storm surge, because I'm near this river, because, and that type of communication, I think will improve people's understanding of flood risk. So I think that would be a positive outcome. And the other thing, getting back to this issue of affordability is that right now there's this perverse cross subsidy in NFIP rating from low valued to high valued homes. And to the extent you think that high income people are in high valued homes, it's very regressive, right? And so, because the rating doesn't take account of home value and that would be changed as well. So I think there's a number of benefits to risk rating 2.0, but it is the case that there's going to be places where NFIP is underpricing and rates are going to go up. And that's why I think you need to kind of couple it with an affordability program. Tim? Yeah, I, I definitely think the affordability program has to go alongside of it. Um, you know, people have struggled with the NFIP's not flexibility of payment options, for instance. You know, we only do an annual premium or, you know, London and off companies out there doing the finance options and things like that for some of these consumers. Um, private, I do think, has come in and helped, you know, offset some of that premium. But I wonder if you could talk a little bit about what, what private's doing. And, you know, is there any negative consequences of what private's kind of doing in that market as far as mitigation and private that's coming in with lower rates and all you're doing is turning over these high risk properties that are still in these A and B zones when there's no mitigation or, you know, to, to any of solve any of these problems, what, what's going to happen there, you know, and what, what's being done on, I guess, on the private and public partnerships. That's a really good point. And I think I completely agree with you in that I, when I look across, and this isn't just flood, but when I look across sort of public insurance programs, sort of quasi to fully public disaster insurance programs, they seem to be able to be much more effective in uniting risk reduction and risk transfer than the private sector does on its own, right? And so exactly as you're saying, I mean, the NFIP is not just an insurance program. It has all these other social goals. And one of them is reducing risk. And there's grant programs to do that and community incentive programs. And all of that's really important and even more important, right, as we're seeing flood risk escalate. Um, and certainly there's criticisms that they could be doing more and they could, but the fact that they're doing anything, right, is really critical. Um, and I think that's right. And I think some of the private sector tools for mitigation are not as effective, right? So we've seen that you sometimes can get premium discounts when you adopt mitigation measures, but there's not actually really good evidence that they inspire new mitigation as opposed to just rewarding people who did it anyway um, and that type of thing. So I think that's a possibility. And there's even, if you look beyond flood, there's some interesting public sector models around mitigation that I don't know if could translate into a flood space, but I think the California Earthquake Authority and I think it's the North Carolina wind pool have both found that it's cost effective in terms of lower um, reinsurance rates to actually provide grants for mitigation to their riskiest properties. So whether that's bracing and bolting your home or fortifying your roof in North Carolina, 
Um, but you don't see a lot of private homeowners companies, for example, giving grants to customers to mitigate their homes, right? So. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, and, and, and that, that's a great point. I mean, I think it's it's important because you've done a lot of research in the space of private flood. And, and I think it was a year or so ago, uh, the Wharton, your work with the Wharton School released the private flood insurance study about what's happening in the marketplace. Now we're a couple of years year or two away from that study, obviously, and the market has constant, is still changing and constantly changing. And, and we always hear about, right, that one event that could really disrupt the big hurricane that we're not expecting could really disrupt the marketplace. But overall, you know, from the research you did, what is, what do you see happening in private flood, its uptake, its uh, ability to, to kind of evolve over time, because this is where the, the discussions are happening in the industry, especially when you start hearing about, you know, what's going to happen with the NFIP, the risk rating 2.0, the fact that Congress is waiting on all these things to change to really move forward any meaningful reform. What What's your thoughts? And, and maybe talk about that research you did on private flood a little bit. Sure, yeah. The report we did was sort of a snapshot of where the private flood insurance, the residential private flood insurance market was at that time. Mm -hmm. And we really did it because there was all this talk about the role that private flood would have in the residential market. But because there wasn't any systematic data collection or comprehensive data collection, it was really hard to know what was really going on in the market. So we tried to figure out you know, how many firms were operating, how many policies did they have, what was the type of, you know, what was the nature of those policies you know, what were their underwriting strategies, like all these types of things to try to get a window into the market. And as you said, it's changing so fast that we even, you know, we were making changes like the day before we kind of finalized it because it, yeah. kept, it kept evolving. And I think both of you probably have a much better sense than I do of where things are today. You know, when we did that, we estimated that the private residential market was probably about 5% of all flood insurance policies enforced nationwide. And I'm sure it's more than that now because it's just been growing, but whether it's like 7% or 10%, you know, I don't, I'm not really sure. Yeah. Um, what I thought was most interesting actually was the, um, was the possibility and you're starting to see this. And I think this is also growing of having an add on to your homeowner's policy to cover flood in low risk areas. So to make sure that you could get flood coverage for these types of intense rainfall events or other areas where you're not mapped into a high risk zone, you might not even realize you're at risk of flooding, but you are and providing coverage to those people through their homeowners policy um, seemed um, like a helpful step forward. We've always talked about kind of the, the natural disasters and how many we've seen in the last 10 years, whether they be wildfires, floods, or, you know, the hurricanes and the winds and you know, whatever earthquakes. You know, at some point, it's a breaking point. You know, I mean, we're at a, you know, losses that aren't sustainable. And, you know, there's got to be something that's got to be done on that. And it would be nice to see homeowners step up or insurance companies step up and add on these things that, you know, and have them on there. You know, or, you know, we always thought there could be a way to put on some type of fee that would go into, you know, a pool that would subsidize some of these losses. But. Yeah, have you, have you seen some in 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 looking at things in in the flood insurance and just in the general catastrophe insurance realm? Have you started to see ideas such as you know getting more homeowners policies to be almost like all perils, right? Because we're not in in the insurance world. That's still a newer idea. Having more of something like all perils on again to your point on the homeowner or residential side of things. 
Um, have you seen any of uh, any, or understood of any programs that uh, you talked to, or I guess a, a better question would be, how were the companies, were they responsive to your request for the information so that you did get a better understanding of what was going on? Yeah, good question. I mean, I think, as you both know and could probably say more than me, I think most of the private flood that has started in the U.S. tend to be smaller companies, right, um, that are not necessarily doing comprehensive homeowners policies or other things. Um, that point about starting to see this become more of an add-on in homeowners, I think, um, I think that will become more widespread, but you're not anywhere close in the U.S. to seeing homeowners policies that cover all natural disasters, right? Um, but I think to both your points, that from a consumer perspective, that would be really fantastic, right? Because you don't have to be worried that you don't have coverage. You don't have to try to be educating homeowners that like, you think you bought coverage, but really it wasn't for a lot of these other things that you should be worried about, right? right? Yeah, exactly. um, and I think just the transaction cost for a consumer of having to figure out my homeowner's policy, now I have to figure out a flood policy. Oh, wait, and I have to maybe figure out like another earthquake or wildfire, or if you live in some of these parts of the country where you actually are prone to more than one of these catastrophe perils, right? And the places where that seems to be working most require a fundamental shift in how our country has handled catastrophe perils. So I'm thinking about countries um, like in Europe, like France, for example, where what they've done is essentially mandated that all property insurance policies include all catastrophes. Okay, so that when you get a policy, you are covered as the homeowner for all these Perils. The challenge, right, is that that could bankrupt insurers because if you get some huge event hitting the country, they just don't have enough capital. And also, if they had to protect themselves to cover such devastating claims, the cost to the homeowner of this all-peril policy would be too exorbitant. Like, I mean, we're, we're talking about affordability problems, right? There'd be huge yeah. affordability problems. So to get around those problems, like making sure that people can pay for it and that the companies don't go bankrupt, there's essentially like a flat fee across everyone, which first of all, in the US, we would, wouldn't like because we like risk-based pricing, but this is like everyone pays the same amount no matter what the risk is. <laughs> and when there's a really severe catastrophe event, the government backstops the insurers. So the insurers know that they won't go bankrupt from a catastrophe. And in exchange, everyone gets coverage. Sorry, just to like add on to one other thing here. Yeah. The thing that I've started to be a little bit more concerned about, particularly when we get into some of these conversations about insurance with the recent pandemic, is that we seem in the U.S. to take this really peril by peril approach, right? So we have problems in the flood market. We create the flood insurance program. We have problems in the earthquake market. California creates their thing. All the different states create their own wind pools to deal with it. We have a tear. I mean, you, I know we're kind of in the NatCat space, but like, right, we have a separate tariff. So we have all these different things that are like one-off responses instead of sort of thinking holistically about disaster risk. That's that's <laughs> no, that's no, no. super interesting. And, and so your, your thought is to have the government almost, and what I was going to mention is have the government almost act like a reinsurer, right? So that when the companies are giving everybody coverage, they know they're not going to go bankrupt because the appropriations would almost be more of a reinsurance appropriation versus a disaster appropriation. Yeah, yeah. and to me, that kind of makes sense if you think about like, well, what's the market failure in disaster insurance? Why is the government intervening in this market at all, right? And for me, the you know the market failure is that it's really expensive, prohibitively expensive, to provide cover for disaster risks that can have these 
enormous bankruptcy potential losses, right? That it's, you just can't transfer that in an affordable way. And so if that's the failure, then it makes sense that the government would be the kind of last resort insurer, right? They would, it's like when we get to that really crazy big event, you have to have the government step in. And maybe it's worth saying though, in case there's any private sector reinsurers listening, that this doesn't mean that we're cutting out private sector reinsurance, right? I mean, if you look at the UK um, and their pool re, for example, for terrorism, they're making use of risk transfer to the reinsurance market, to insurance-linked securities, and actually helping enable that market while also having sort of the government backstop role. Well, well, so I was just going to say, like, the stakeholders that we have to kind of dumb it down to, like, you know, a lot of the states have programs for high-risk drivers. They just get seated to a pool and randomly assigned to an insurance company. So I could kind of see, you know, some of these high-risk areas being assigned randomly to different insurance companies in different states that are providing homeowners coverage, and they would appropriate that kind of risk to wherever it's going to be. Well, interesting. We've never looked at those high-risk auto programs, but that's, okay, now I'm going to go look into Yeah, no, but that's kind of what they do is they kind of model it and say, okay, you're, you know, you've got five accidents and you've got so many speeding tickets, you're high risk. They get assigned to a random company, but they all, these insurance companies pay into that pool to handle those high risk areas. So it's a similar model is exactly what you're saying that they do over in Europe. I mean, they do it for auto in a lot of, some states, not all, I don't know, but, you know, and, the, and there's also some inkling of that happening with the National Flood Insurance Program on the reinsurance side where they're starting to purchase that reinsurance. So not I, not exactly to, to the model that Europe is using, but for the first time in 50 years, about what was it, three or four years ago, they started purchasing the reinsurance, which shows there is some model or theory of a model moving towards that, right? And, and I don't believe, and, and at least it wasn't made, uh, uh, you know, as prevalent that, you know, the rate, the rate payers for flood insurance were not really charged that insurance premium. It was just, you know, it cost a, you know, a couple hundred million and they got a couple, you know, billion in, in coverage. So it's something where, yeah, I think there's, there's a, there's a, there's a way to look at this that's different than what we've been doing in the past. Because in, in Carolyn, I really like your thought just then that we do approach this peril by peril. And is there a, is there a, a movement or would you see a, a mindset? What, what would need to change in order for the whole industry to say, let's start looking at this more holistically rather than one-offs? That's a really good question. And I think it would really take a fundamental shift in our vision of the role of government here. Um, and maybe this thing about auto insurance and everything is, is sort of suggesting that it's actually not as big a shift as it might appear to be, right? That we're already kind of there in a lot of places, but it would really be kind of changing the federal role um, and thinking of the federal role as what needs to be done to enable the private sector to offer these all peril policies. And, and that conversation of what insurers would need to feel comfortable doing that, I don't think is one that's really been had in the U.S. Really interesting. And I, and I want to I wanna shift us from this discussion around what could happen in the marketplace to what is happening in the marketplace right now with a little bit of a talk about um, a, couple, a couple ideas around this, this, the events that we're having, right? So we've had 2017, 2018, and 2019. Uh, while 2019 was a little bit quieter in terms of actual insured losses, 
Um, what are these large um, events? What type of stressors are they putting on the insurance market as a whole, right? Because what we're seeing right now in the marketplace, at least on the commercial side, is these cumulative losses. And now we have coronavirus, which loss of use, even though it's technically in a lot of places not covered, the lawsuits are certainly going to start flying all over the place. And if states are asking these insurers to pay, a lot of them are Lloyd's back, all of a sudden Lloyd's has a crisis. And so we can see this only continuing over the next year or so where these insurers are having these huge stressors that they may not have had in the past. You know, we always talk about, right, if Hurricane Dorian had come across Florida, what would that have done to the private flood and, and other, other, you know, large catastrophe insurance programs that may be heavily weighted by Florida risk? But that just highlights the idea that what do you expect to see potentially happen to these insurers as these losses only continue to accumulate? I think that's a really good question and one we need to be really thinking about right now in advance <laughs> of, you know, getting to some breakdown point because I think the concern is that, you know, the combined pressures of continued development in high risk areas, climate change and other sort of globalization factors, integration it are just pushing losses upward, right? We're just seeing more frequent and more severe catastrophe events. Um, and I think it's, I think it's absolutely the case, actually, that there's going to be places and perils that become essentially uninsurable, by which I mean, you can't transfer the risk at any price that anyone could afford to do so. Mm. And the question is, can we prevent that point from being reached in some markets through more effective policy? Because some of these losses, as you mentioned with COVID and the potential state legislation, and I don't know if there's a federal proposal, but I know many states were toying with this idea of forcing insurers to pay for losses they didn't price for. And you can't do that, right? Without kind of really wreaking havoc on an industry. Well, but it's so not really risk-based either. The, you know, yeah. the, I mean, because it's widespread and it's every, everything, you know? Exactly. You can't, can't price that out. No, exactly. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. But so is that policy interaction with the risk too that drives it, right? So can we do some proactive things to kind of make the markets work as best they can to prevent this? So what I'm thinking when I say that is that there's some places on the coast where you're going to get such frequent tidal flooding in the near term, you know, the next 10, 20 years that you, that it's not a risk anymore. It's a certainty, right? There are places that are going to be flooding every month, multiple times, and you can't ensure that anymore. Like the answer then is risk reduction. We're going to have to move out. We're going to have to build differently. But if you contrast that with like what California seen, and they had these really severe wildfire years in 27 and 2018, is that a new normal for wildfire that definitely caused stress in the homeowner's market, right? We saw, you know, uh, non-renewals go up. We saw shifts to surplus lines. We saw shifts to the fair plan, but not, you know, not enough to really ruin the market there, right? But if we think that we're going to be moving that way, what could California be doing to kind of protect the homeowner's market and make sure it could be robust to sort of increasing risk? And that's going to be both insurance policies, but also thinking about how insurance should be informing land use policy and building code policy to maintain insurability. Hmm. Really interesting, and I well, I think those are those are things that that the average the average uh, you know uh, person that's that's looking out their window and seeing no risk today may not understand that the reason that their insurance is going up is because while they may not be seeing the risk, somebody else is, and they're going to get rated for that, and the cost 
of these products, again, we go back to, to costs, right? They're, they're not going down in a lot of places. <laughs> they're only going to continue to increase, which brings us all full circle back to this discussion about affordability. And, and I want to talk about affordability in a different way. And Tim alluded to this earlier, where, uh, where mitigation plays a major role, right? The, the idea that you can elevate your home and see a reduction in risk, or you can uh, you know, pull your building away from the water and construction. And, and, but, but, you know, I think you mentioned it earlier, Carolyn, is, you know, there, there are instances where there's actually um, people are building um, and continuing to exist in places that we know have huge risk. What do you see in, in either research you've done or just by looking at you know, an overall body of work that, that you've seen, um, what do you see from the future of mitigation in terms of whether that's elevating homes or whether that's just getting out of certain places and its relationship to helping to lower the cost of flood insurance? That's a really good question. And I think it gets thorny quickly with flooding actually, because I think some of the most effective mitigation measures are difficult and expensive, more so than maybe for some other perils. Um, you know, so elevating homes is really costly. Relocating is financially and emotionally costly and difficult for communities, right? Um, and yet those are probably the most effective mitigation measures. Um, there are sort of lower cost things that you can do and we probably need to be spending more time focusing on those and figuring out ways to sort of make sure they're adopted in a more widespread way. So things like moving your mechanicals, your heating and cooling out of the basement if your basement's prone to flooding, using flood resistant flooring materials, you know, in the basement or first floor, flood vents, you know, these types of things that can indeed lower total losses um, and are easier to do. Another challenge with flood, right, is like some neighborhoods, um, you know, I think a lot of the mitigation discussion is built around an image of sort of like a single family home sitting in a floodplain, right? Where water's gonna start rising. Um, and in some work we've recently been doing with New York City, it's really opened my eyes, right? That there's actually really different kinds of development. And if you have like a block of row homes, you know, elevating those is a whole different proposition than sure. dealing with a, sing with a single home. So I think there's a lot of issues around mitigation we have to figure out. Carolyn, um, one thing I wanted to ask you on this topic that Joe and I started to introduce at in a, in a state level as an idea, and I want to see if it's more nationally, is kind of coming up with like, a, you know, energy savings programs. They have these grants or low interest loan programs out there. One of the things we hear from stakeholders is they'd like to elevate their home, but they don't have the home to value on their mortgage. So the bank's not going to lend them the money to do this program. You know, one, one concept that we'd like to see, you know, on different state levels, maybe it becomes national, is being able to, to access a low interest loan or some type of interest free program where they can do these flood vents or they can raise their mechanicals or if they want to go for a larger loan that there's a revolving fund there that's not, you know, driven by the bank or whatever it may be to, to mitigate these things and get them forward. I just don't know if you, there's any programs out there or you could comment on kind of what you're seeing. Yeah, I think that's a great idea, especially because it gets to existing construction, right? And we really have to figure out how to mitigate existing construction. Um, I, there have been, I know of a couple loan programs, one that was tried. I know the Small Business Administration lets you take out a larger loan if you use it for mitigation at the time you're rebuilding in your disaster loan. But there, 
the ones that I've heard of are just not, they were not used. They were not utilized by people and very few people make use of these extra SBA disaster loans. But that says to me, not that the concept of a loan is flawed. I think that's a really good concept, but that you have to couple it with um, making it really seamless for the homeowner, right? To understand what mitigation they have to do, what contractor they can work with, how they find the right, right. person, how they know that the price is right. Because the cost of figuring all that out, I think, are too high for an individual. So if you had it coupled with some sort of like consultancy, right? Or some kind of like these, like you can get energy audits, like, right? Like we had someone come to yeah. our house from the energy company and they told us everything we needed to do. If you could have that kind of flood resilience audit where they said, here's exactly the mitigation you need. Here's your loan program. Here's how much it's going to cost you. And just call here or sign here, right? To yep. make sure it's all easy. I think that would really help. Wow. That's, that's really cool. And that is something we're working on with the state legislator in Massachusetts. We should have had a bill this spring, but with everything going on, obviously legislative bandwidths quickly evaporated. Um, but we are working with the state legislator on a low interest loan or grant program for mitigation, flood mitigation. Um, so that having those ideas are going to be important to helping to implement that program um, as we get further down the line here um, in the state. That's um, really interesting for just if you're thinking about that concept. Um, there was a pilot program in Portland, Oregon that did these types of flood audits, but they actually coupled it with a more comprehensive safety audit for the home. And so the homeowner got, they were people in the floodplain. And so they were told about what to do about flood safety, but also energy efficiency, water conservation and health and safety issues in the home. And I thought that was kind of interesting. I mean, that kind of radically scales your program in a different direction, but it's sort of interesting because from the homeowner's perspective, right? You're just thinking about your well-being in your home and there's something kind of nice about having all of that in one package. Well, it gets back to your comment on the, um singular approach versus a widespread, you know, we can, I can tell you here, building codes have changed. They used to require impact resistant windows for flooding. Then all of a sudden the fire said, we can't break those windows to vent a home if there's a fire. So it's changed a lot. And a lot of that influence may be on the home insurance side and, and what the replacement cost is and how much these windows cost. So having an, I, you know, in the pilot program in, in Portland, where they came in and did multiple things is a better idea for, you know, especially some of these homes that are in these A and B zones where there's not just a risk of tidal, but or, you know, flooding, it's also wind or wind damage too. So it's having those two kind of things tied in together is a, is a great concept. Yeah, I guess it's just hard, right? Cause you have to get like different expertise to all come together and inform one program, which is yeah. Yeah. institutionally harder, yeah. Well, we're getting uh, down towards the end here. And before we start to wrap up, I want to give you a chance, Carolyn, to talk a little bit about the Wharton Risk Center, because I think it's critical for our listeners to know what you do there, not just you, but what you and your colleagues do uh, at the Wharton Risk Center and why it's so important uh, to have a place like this where not only this research is done, but you're actively looking at new um, uh, new things, new products, new thoughts about uh, risk. So talk a little bit about uh, the Wharton Risk Center. Sure, great. Yeah, thanks. Um, the Wharton Risk Center is a research center affiliated with the business school at the University of Pennsylvania. Um, I like to think that we have sort of three big buckets of activities, and one is our research, and that's largely been on issues of disaster risk management, including communication and finance, 
We've recently divided our research into five research labs. So one is that disaster risk management where the centers for decades done a lot of work. We also have a risk communication and decision-making lab, which draws on behavioral economics research about how people think about risk, how they make decisions under uncertainty. We have a behavioral science and technology lab that's focused on you know, the radical changes we've seen in data and technology and how that influences our decision-making. And then we have two newer labs that are um, topical areas that are newer for the center. One is a political risk lab focused on political risk. And the other one is our business climate and environment lab that looks at climate and sustainability topics. So that's kind of our research. And then we also have a policy incubator where we focus on helping develop new public policies that can help promote um, better risk management and resilience. And then we have a bunch of student activities because we are at a university. So we have a student fellows program where we work with undergraduates and things like that. Um, so yeah, a lot of stuff going on at the center. Wow, wow. And that, that's really exciting. Um, what, are, uh, what are some of the maybe flood or non-flood things that you're working on currently there? Uh, we have a project right now that's somewhat related to flood. We're looking at innovative risk transfer mechanisms to help with climate adaptation challenges. And so that actually touches on a lot of things we talked about today, right? What do we do with sort of increasing and changing extremes and what's the role of insurance and risk transfer more broadly um, in preparing us for that future? So that's one that's related, yeah. That's cool. So in, in kind of wrapping up our, our talk today about, about flood and all the different things, and we talked about a lot of different things than just flood, the mitigation and, and the different programs that are out there. You know, what would you like to say in conclusion to those listening about just flood insurance and the NFIP or private flood or any of the things we talked about today? No, good question. I'm not sure. I, this has been a fantastic <laughs> conversation. I love chatting with you guys. Um, I think it's just really important that we're paying attention to these issues and trying to get ahead of them, right? And, um, you know, the more we can do, you know, it's hard to get people to think about disasters when it's sunny and lovely outside, but the more we can do that and prepare, then the less suffering we have after a disaster. And so these types of conversations, I think, are really important when they're not crisis driven. So, okay, so I've got a closing question for you, and you've got to sum it up in about one sentence, okay? Okay. What is, what is, we talked earlier about the golden nugget on getting somebody to purchase flood insurance, and you went on to outline some really important multiple issues that exist for, for boundaries for somebody to purchase flood insurance, but... If you were talking to somebody that goes out there and tries to, to, to get people to buy flood insurance, what is the most important thing or most important boundary to break when it comes to getting somebody to purchase a flood insurance policy? It's a really good question. Um, I think it might be getting people to actually think about how they would recover from a disaster and to realize the limitations without insurance, right? Or to figure out, or maybe maybe not, maybe they're okay, but to focus on, you know, what would I really happen if all of a sudden I had, you know, $50,000 of damage? How would I handle that? And to understand the limitations of disaster aid programs and loans and how that would work. Because if you can think through ahead of time, you know, what your recovery plan is, then you can put the necessary pieces in place. Wow. Well, I think Tim and I will use that in our professional careers to definitely try to move the needle um, because I think it's critical. And, you know, it's, it's ironic because that is exactly what our, uh, you know, the coalition over the year, over the last two years has talked about that uh, bank account for resilience, right, and flood insurance. And the number one thing we outline is 
our communication with stakeholders, trying to get them to understand the financial resources and the limitations in those resources without flood insurance. And I think that's the key piece, and you, you alluded to that, Carolyn, which is what are the limitations of the existing financial pieces that people expect to have, right? The disaster assistance, it's, it's the limitations around those financial resources that are so critical for people to understand, to your point, because what happens when they have that large loss and $5,000 isn't gonna cover it from individual assistance. Um, so that's, uh, Tim, any, any last thoughts here and as, as we finish up? I, I could go on for hours, but I don't think that's <laughs> going to be We could do this all yeah, day together. <laughs> yeah, I, don't, I think I'm going to leave it there on that subject. I don't think I want to you know, keep it going here. But. No, that's, I, I agree. I mean, I think this is, this is a really interesting conversation because we're not just diving into flood insurance and the product. We've really taken a deep dive today on some questions we need to answer and some questions that we are starting to answer throughout the whole industry. Um, as we think more about uh, flood insurance and its role here uh, in everyday life. So with that, Carolyn, I wanna, I wanna thank you so much for participating in our No Flood Newscast uh, today. Um, and- Thanks so much to both of you. This thank was you. Yeah. yeah, this was a lot of fun. And, and we'll definitely have to have you back on as things, I mean, things are changing so quickly right now in the insurance industry in general, as we get further down the road here and we have more guests on, I'm sure the list of questions we'll want to ask you is only going to continue to grow as future guests come on. So I appreciate you coming on very much. Yeah, thank you. Look forward to future conversations. No, that's great. And thank, thank you. you. And uh, thank you everyone for listening to today's No Flood Newscast.